right here. Thank you. Well, as you may have picked up in that reading, there are a number of references to being new creations, those who are made to be righteous when we were purchased by Christ. In the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, in verse 6, Christ said this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And as we continue our study of the Beatitudes today, those are the words that we will be considering. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But just before we dive into this one particular Beatitude, I want to pause once more and consider these teachings of Jesus as a whole unit. I want to offer to you a helpful way of thinking about them collectively, these supreme blessings that Christ expects of all his disciples. Consider, if you would, a tree. It's a simple image, I know, it's intended to be. It has at its foundation the roots, the source of its life. It then gives way to a trunk and branches, its life. And finally, you would find upon it its crop, its fruit. The Beatitudes function in largely the same way. The first three, if you like, are the roots of the disciples' life, being found poor in spirit, mourning spiritually, and being meek and humble. When we are called to recognize our inability to save ourselves, when we express our sorrow over our sin in repentance, and when we humble ourselves before our God accepting forgiveness and offering it to others, we have our roots established. These are the foundations of the disciples' life, recognizing their inability, their dependence on God, and turning to him in humility. These roots, these foundations, then spring forth in life. And the trunk of our beatitude tree is today's beatitude. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. As the roots are established in the disciple, from them grows a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those who seek the righteousness of Christ, those who are given the righteousness of Christ, will in their lives display fruit. And they will be our consideration in due course. The fruits of mercy, purity, peaceableness, and persecution. These are the evidences of a righteous life as Christ describes it here in these Beatitudes. We have our roots, our life, and our fruit. And today's Beatitude in that image functions as the transition from establishment and foundation through to fruit and outworking. Today's functions as the conduit. It shifts us from the 
attitudes that the disciple should have to the action that the disciple should live. So as we consider Christ's words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Have in mind this transition from foundation to outworking as we seek Christ's own righteousness. And if we are, friends, to grasp the significance of what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness, I think first we must establish what righteousness is, what it is that we are to hunger and thirst after. So let's ask that question. What is righteousness? Righteousness is quite simply right standing, right living, living life right, however you want to phrase it. Righteousness, biblically speaking, is when one acts in accordance with God's moral law and character. True righteousness is living God's way, being morally upright and correct by God's standard, not our own. Righteousness is having a right standing before our Lord. And so the perfectly righteous person could stand before God himself with no fear, no shame, no need for excuse, or forgiveness. That is what we're to aspire to. That is what we're told to hunger and thirst to. But again, there are two types of righteousness and we need to make the distinction this morning. Firstly, there is the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is where Christ's own righteousness is given into those of faith. It's given to all who believe in him and follow him. And if you were with us in our study of the book of Romans last year, we considered this at length. But in Romans 5.18, Paul summarizes it quite helpfully when he's contrasting the sin of Adam and the righteousness of Christ. He says in Romans 5.18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. We, when we come to faith, inherit the righteousness of Christ. It is imputed into us given to those who have faith, and that's how we will one day stand before God, blameless, holy, accepted, without shame and without sorrow. This is good and joyful news, friends. But there is a second kind of righteousness, and that is the one we are concerned with today. This righteousness in life now is what we are to hunger and thirst after. This righteousness now is the becoming more holy in our lives, becoming more like Christ in our lives now, living by God's standard here and now, not just anticipating the day of its fulfillment, 
in heaven. In our passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul highlights both of these truths, saying that you were saved and given Christ's righteousness, but that you were also called to live with righteousness now. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, he said, And he died for all, that's all who believe, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. We are to live now as the righteous people in Christ. And in verse 20, he continues, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is why you were saved. If you are a disciple, a Christian, if you've been called a child of God by God himself, if you have believed in Christ, repented of your sins, the reason that you have done those things is so that you might be righteous before God. There are, of course, other reasons. But here, Paul makes it plain that God desires righteousness in his people. Those who were bought by Christ were bought for a purpose. And that purpose is to honor God with our lives, to live his way, to have right standing before him. And in our beatitude, Jesus says that this righteousness should be the yearning, the desire, the hunger, the thirst of every disciple. For the remainder of our time studying this beatitude this morning, I'm going to press quite deeply into the image of hunger and thirst. I'm going to use it as a springboard for our consideration and our self-reflection when we consider are we hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I should say up front that I owe a great deal of the wisdom in this message to the Puritan author Thomas Watson. Some 400 years ago, he wrote a magnificent book on the Beatitudes. It's now available online in a PDF form for free. If you're interested, get in contact and we'll gladly send it to you. But Thomas Watson devoted much of his life to understanding these Beatitudes and his wisdom has been wonderfully helpful in preparing this message. I want to begin our consideration of what it is hunger and thirst with some simple observations about those two things. Hunger and thirst. Firstly, let me say that hunger is a sign of life. It may seem simple to say, but dead people do not grow hungry. So too it is only those who are alive in Christ who can truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. Dead people do not hunger. The spiritually dead do not hunger after righteousness. We were once dead. Scripture teaches us in numerous places. 
but you have been made alive in Christ. And having been made alive, we would expect the evidence of life to be played out in a desire, a hunger for righteousness. Hunger is a sign of life. Secondly, hunger is natural. Especially at the beginning of life. Hunger comes naturally to newborn babes, doesn't it? We don't need to teach an infant to be hungry. We may need to teach them how to eat. But we do not need to teach them to hunger. So it is with our spiritual hunger and thirst. In 1 Peter 2 verse 2, he instructs the church, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Hunger is a natural part of life. And hunger for righteousness, hunger, desire, thirst, yearning to be like Christ, to be right with God should also come naturally to the believer. And I suspect that if you're anything like me, in your Christian infancy, when you were a newborn believer, that hunger came quite easily. Perhaps as we consider in the near future, that hunger has waned somewhat. Thirdly, hunger promotes growth. We have, Beth and I, two young boys. They are growing young boys. And they are hungry boys. Day by day, our pantry is bare, ravaged by the hunger of our lads. I thought it might be a mouse plague. It's not. It's just two growing boys who need to eat who long to eat, and as they eat, they grow in strength, if not maturity. They grow in size. They grow in health. So it is with our spiritual hunger. As we eat of the Lord, as we take in His righteousness, it grows us. Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14. A church is rebuked for not growing like this. The author of Hebrews writes, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. As we eat of Christ, as we pursue righteousness, it prompts growth in our lives. And as long as we are alive, physically and spiritually, hunger will be unending. We may be physically hungry one day and find ourselves filled but we will grow hungry again. We are satiated, yes, and our 
thirst is quenched, but only for a time. As we grow and strengthen, we become hungry once more. The cycle of life repeats. We should find the same thing in our spiritual hunger. That as we eat, as we digest, as we grow and strengthen, we become hungry yet again. Another observation is that hunger is satisfied only by food, not anything else. If you are hungry and someone offered you a nice bunch of flowers, that might be a lovely gesture, it might be something quite pleasant, but it's not going to satisfy your hunger. So with spiritual hunger, it can only be satisfied by spiritual righteousness, worldly morals, Worldly notions, worldly idols will not satisfy a righteous hunger. Only Christ can do that. My final observation about hunger and thirst is that a lack of hunger indicates sickness. When we lose our appetite in life, when we refrain from eating, it generally shows that something is wrong. We're ailing. We have an internal problem. Perhaps life is drawing to its end. The same is true of spiritual hunger. When we lack spiritual hunger, it indicates sickness. When we've lost our appetite for Christ, it shows that something is wrong, that perhaps inside us we are unwell. Finally, friends, let me say, hunger and thirst for righteousness really is such a minimal expectation. We were saved by Christ. He doesn't demand that we instantly be perfect, simply that we shift our desire to hunger and thirst for what God too desires for us. So where does it go wrong? Because it does often go wrong in life. If you are sitting here this morning thinking, no, I'm fine, I'm spiritually filled, I hunger and I'm filled daily, I'm more like Christ each day I live, then praise God for you. But if you're anything like the rest of us who struggle to pursue righteousness daily, who perhaps don't feel hungry all the time, let's consider some of the barriers to hunger and thirst. I've Listed seven, and if you have your sermon outline, you'll notice seven spaces to be filled. I'll repeat them as we go. Barriers to hunger. Number one, being filled with something other than food. If we are filled with gas, 
wind. We do not take to food. We feel full already. So in life, if we are filled with our own self-righteousness, with our own pride, we have no room for the food of Christ. Thomas Watson, the Puritan I mentioned, puts it like this. When men are filled with pride, this flatulent distemper hinders holy longings. As when the stomach is full of wind, it spoils the appetite. None are so empty of grace as he who thinks himself already full. If we think that we are filled already, we will not hunger after Christ. It is a real barrier to the pursuit of righteousness, thinking that we have already attained it in our lives being filled with something other than food. Secondly, barrier to hunger is being content without food. If we are hungry in this life, but are more concerned with other things, we'll find our hunger unsatisfied. So it is with our spiritual life. If we are more concerned with other worldly pleasures or pursuits, we'll find our hunger unsatisfied. As with the parable our Lord himself taught, the banquet has been set, the guests have been invited, but if we find other excuses, if we're preoccupied with other things, if we do not come to eat, our hunger will not be satisfied. Being content without food is a barrier to hunger. Thirdly, desiring sleep more than food. Perhaps you have experienced this in your own life. You've worked a long day or a hard day. You get to the end of the evening and think, I can't be bothered cooking tonight. I'm just going to go to bed. I'll survive one night, and you will. When you cannot be bothered to prepare a meal, when you would rather rest than take the effort to eat, your hunger goes unsatisfied, as it is with our spiritual hunger. If you'd rather rest on a Sunday than gather together and feed. If you'd rather sleep than take the effort to feed yourself on God's Word. If you would rather take rest than discipline of preparing time to pray, you'll find your hunger unsatisfied. Desiring sleep more than food. The fourth barrier a simple refusal to eat. This, I know, would be an experience that many parents of young children can associate with. As you have prepared a meal and are literally spoon-feeding an infant who spits it out or slaps it away, who keeps lips pursed and won't take their food, a refusal to eat, despite hunger, can be a barrier. 
oftentimes foods or medicines might be bitter or unappealing. So it is in our faith. There are hard truths to swallow. There are bitter teachings that we'd rather avoid entirely. And so we can refuse to eat. Refusing to eat is a barrier to hunger. Fifthly, distraction by entertainment or other things. If we are busily enjoying recreation in this life, we can all too easily miss our meals, not realizing that our food is going cold. If we are out playing, entertaining ourselves, watching a movie, and all the while our food sits there going cold, so it is with our spiritual hunger. If we are distracted by the world, if we are more invested in the idols of this life than in Christ's righteousness, we can miss what God has prepared for us and play with worldly distractions instead. Distracted by entertainment. That was the fifth barrier to hunger. The sixth is that we're more concerned with the garnish and presentation than the food itself. When Instagram was invented, that app which allows you to instantaneously post photos all around the globe, I do not expect that its designers anticipated that the most Instagrammed thing would be people's meals. Indeed, if you've gone out for dinner lately, it's not uncommon that as a plate arrives, you will see someone get their phone out to photo it rather than eat it. The same thing can happen spiritually. When we're more concerned about how eloquent our preachers are, when we're more concerned about how fancy our Bible is, or how colorful our prayer journal looks, if we're more concerned with the seasoning and the presentation than we are with the meat, our hunger can go unsatisfied. Being more concerned with garnish and presentation is a barrier to hunger. And the final that I have this morning is that sometimes we simply prefer chewing gum Chewing gum may feel a lot like eating, but it never truly satisfies hunger. Spiritually speaking, we chew gum when we bite into the contentious matters of faith, those things that will never be fully digestible. When we're more interested in argument than pursuing righteousness, when we're more interested in knowing of Christ rather than living for Christ, when we'd rather have that fight than actually put things into practice. We're chewing the gum of faith and not truly having our hunger satisfied. Friends, there are so many pitfalls, so many obstacles to true hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as I've listed listed just those seven, if you're anything like me, I imagine at least one of them resonated with your life. 
perhaps more than one. If not, as I said, praise God. You are blessed in your hunger and continue in it. But if you're realizing here and now that perhaps you should be or could be more hungry than you are, I want to say, take heart. Take heart. God's not done with you yet. Your appetite can be restored. And here's how we restore our appetite. You may be thinking, even now, my hunger, my thirst is so weak. Is it even real? Let me say, friends, even a little hunger, even a small amount of thirst is a sign of life. The dead don't hunger at all, remember. You may be weak, you may be weary, but there's spiritual life in you yet if there is even a hint of hunger. A faint pulse is still a pulse. And our good Lord tells us that he is tender and gentle with people in such states. He is the one who takes us and leads us gently into pastures. He is the one who will lead us to streams to drink. It is not expected that you will do it in your own strength. God promises that Christ will not break the tender reed. No, he will tend the broken, heal the sick, and restore those who turn to him. You don't have to be righteous in and of yourself. You don't have to nurture the hunger in your own life. You need but turn to Christ and he will stir it in you. You may be thinking now, I used to hunger. I used to thirst for Christ, but somewhere along the line, it's all gone wrong. I wanted to be righteous. I wanted to know Christ and to be like him and make him known, but it's waned. It's faded. Friends, we're all given to seasons of feast and seasons of famine in our hunger for righteousness. And though it doesn't absolve us if we've waned, it should comfort us if we're struggling. Whilst it's sad that we may have lost our previous hunger and thirst, it's good to acknowledge that that is the case. To grieve that that is the case is the starting point to turning around. If that is you this morning, you used to hunger, but it seems to have waned, there are two small steps that you might take. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do some small thing to taste God once more. Open your Bible when you otherwise wouldn't. Read something more than you have. Pray at a time you wouldn't usually. Join a prayer group. Join a small group. Take some small step to nurture your hunger and thirst once more. Taste. For tasting promotes hunger. So it is, spiritually speaking. The second step is to exercise. Just as physical exercise makes us hungry for physical food once more, so to 
the exercising of our righteousness makes us hungry for more righteousness. As we exercise our faith, as we live out our righteousness, even just a small step at first, you will find that it prompts the desire for more and more. Friends, you don't run a marathon without training, without building up to it. And the expectation this morning cannot be that you would go from famine to feast in one instant. But take a small step. Exercise your faith a little. Eat a little more of Christ's righteousness and see if he makes you more hungry. When we come to Christ hungering and thirsting to be more like him for the first time or for the millionth time, whether we do it continually or after an unexpected time of famine, the promise he makes does not change. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, says Jesus, for they will be filled. Wherever you're at, wherever we're at, with our hunger for Christ's righteousness, know that when we yearn for it, when we taste, when we exercise, when we remove those barriers, we will be filled. At the table of our King, in the presence of Christ who supplies his own righteousness and urges us to come to him, we will be filled. In John 6, Jesus speaks of being the bread of life. In verse 35 of John 6, he says those words. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Are you hearing these promises, friends? He will never turn you away. You will be filled. You will be raised up. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. These are the promises of Christ to those who hunger and thirst after him. So hunger, friends, thirst for Christ and his righteousness as food for your soul. Be fed on his grace, on his mercy, on his peace and on his bliss and on his righteousness. Use those common things that he has given us, his word, prayer, our fellow believers, draw on these gifts to prompt your hunger and thirst once more. I'm going to conclude this sermon now by reading for you Psalm 23. It's not a perfect fit with this message, but I want you to see that the images that God has long shared with his people 
are these same truths that are promised in this beatitude. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray that we would be those people. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we live in a world that is so full of distraction, so full of temptation. We live lives that are so busy, that are so concerned with others and all manner of things that are not the pursuit of righteousness. It is so very easy for we people to have our hunger blocked, subdued, removed almost entirely. And yet your word promises that by your goodness, your grace, and the power of your spirit, those who hunger and thirst will be filled. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that wherever we may be in our cycles of feast and famine, whether we're struggling, whether we're thriving, may you meet each one of us where we are at. For those who are growing eagerly, Lord, feed them more and grow them strong. For those who are sickly, who have not feasted on you in some time, give us small bites to taste. Give us small exercise to work. Lord, for those whose hunger has waned, may you restore it. And Lord, for those who are at the outset of this journey, infants in the faith eagerly desiring you, May you give them your abundance and move them swiftly onto the meat of our faith. Lord, as all of this happens in your goodness, we pray that we would indeed be more righteous in this life, that we might shine and show Christ in all we say and do. And we ask that as we do that, he would be honored and made known in this world. And we ask it in his name. Amen.